Well, many years ago, I came across an advertisement for Major League Baseball. They had just updated their logo. They don't continue to use this logo, but at the time, they had just updated their logo to have this little tagline underneath that said, I live for this. And I thought, wow, okay, so they don't want us to just play baseball or watch baseball or buy tickets and go to, to the baseball games. They, they are commending that we live for baseball. And then not long after that, I came across a book entitled, I Live for This. And it's a biography about uh, Los Angeles Dodgers manager, Tommy Lasorda. And I was like, wait, wait. He lives for baseball? And sure enough, that's what the book was commending. It had chapter titles like chapter one, I fought for this. Chapter three, I trained for this. Chapter five, I hungered for this. Chapter six, I was born for this. Chapter seven, I preached for this. Chapter eight, I nearly died for this. Chapter nine, I cried for this. And then the epilogue, I was reborn for this. So make no mistake, Tommy Lasorda lived for baseball. And it got me thinking, if there was a book written about me entitled, I Live for This, what would the book be about? What is it that I live for? You know, this is the kind of question that when I was 19 years old, I was in my first semester in college, that I began thinking about. It wasn't the exact question, but I had been raised in the church. I knew about God. I knew about Jesus. I knew about his cross. I knew about the forgiveness of sins. I went to church on Sundays like most everybody else did that I knew. I gave like others gave, but I didn't actually live for Jesus. And so I want to put this question to you this morning. If there is a book entitled, I Live for This, and it was about your life, what would that book be about? What do you live for? What do you train for? You know, if a book was written about Leah, the character Leah in the Old Testament, I think there was a point where she was living for the affection of her husband, Jacob. If a book was written about her sister, the Old Testament character Rachel, entitled I Live for This, I think she was living for the significance that that was brought by having children. She says to her husband Jacob, give me children or I die. She's living for that. We can live for success. We can live for comfort, for adventure, for entertainment. You know, if we are wrapped up in fearing what other people think of us or seeking to please others, that, that's living for reputation. So let me ask you, what do you live for? What do you train for? What do you hunger after? What do you preach or talk to others about? What are you willing to die for? Well, Philippians chapter 1, we have Paul's answer to this question. 
It's in verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Jesus Christ in this passage is put forth not just as the object of our faith, the one that we believe in, but he is put forth as the one that is worthy of living and dying for. So if you have your Bible open to Philippians 1, let's let's allow Christ to be commended to our hearts this morning. I'm going to begin in Philippians 1, the second half of verse 18. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to hear from you, for allowing us to gather today like this. And I I just look out among our church this morning and I know that so many, Lord, are persevering to be here. There's things going on in their lives, there's things going on in their bodies, there's distractions, cares, pains, things they hope to get done, Lord, things that could easily distract them this morning. Lord, thank you for bringing us together that we could attend to something that is of eternal significance. And we pray for your help, Lord. We pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our lives and so help us to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. Treasure him for who he is. Treasure him for what he's done Treasure him for who he is for us as Lord and Savior. And I pray you would use this morning, Lord, to awaken any in our midst that don't yet trust Christ, who cannot say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray for your help. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that you pour out your Holy Spirit among us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Philippians is a letter of friendship. Friendship between a beloved apostle 
and one of the churches that he planted. He is writing from prison. He's seeking to tell the church how he is doing. And yet when we read his letter, it has little to do with what's going on in prison. And it has much more to do with what God is up to. We saw last week that the gospel is advancing despite setbacks and sin. So Paul is locked up, but he says, I rejoice that the gospel's going forward. You know, Paul being in prison does not prevent him from doing what he really wants to do. And I think about that. I think about that for me or for many of us. Like if we were in prison... Prison would keep us from doing what we really want to do. And yet, that is not the case for Paul. Paul says, I want to live and I want to die for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. And he can do that from prison. He can serve others from prison. That's what he's doing with this letter. And so, I think the main point of what he's saying in the verses that we just read is this. The more we are convinced that Christ is the only one worth living and dying for, the more we will spread this joy to others. The more that we are convinced, convicted, that Jesus Christ is the only one worth living and dying for, the more we will share and spread this joy to others. Paul is saying, life is about Jesus Christ. It's about his honor and about his glory. We were created through him. We were created by him. We were saved at the cost of his precious blood shed on the cross. He deserves the rightful place in our life at the tip top. And the more we see this, we're convinced of this, the more we will spread this joy to others. Even if spreading this joy to others is costly or painful, or even if our situation in which we're spreading it to others really, really stinks. Jesus is just that great. And so as I thought about Tommy Lasorda's book, I Live for This, and as I read the chapters that made up his book, I thought, what would those chapters be for the Apostle Paul? And so I I took a stab at it. This is what I think his chapters would be. Chapter one for the Apostle Paul's book, I Live for This, is I live for Christ. I live for Christ. Look at verse 18 again. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Paul says that he knows something, verse 19. And then he says he expects something, verse 20. He knows that he will be delivered from prison one way or another. He will either be freed by the emperor or he will die and then he'll be free. Either way, 
Freedom's coming. And we know that Paul has this, this death portion in view as far as freedom because he's actually quoting the book of Job here. In Job 13, verse 16, it's a, it's a quote, uh, this will turn out for my deliverance. Job was a blameless and righteous man who suffered greatly. And both Paul and Job were looking to their final deliverance, their final vindication before the Lord. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we have that in view? The final vindication? I mean, none of us are literally in prison like Paul, but we do long for freedom. There is a day coming where you will no longer be tempted by your most common sin. Might happen in this life. It will definitely happen in eternity. Praise God. There's a day coming where the people who sin against you repeatedly will sin for the very last time. It might be in this life. It will definitely be in eternity. There is a day coming when Every disease will be healed. Could be in this life that you experience some healing. It will definitely be in the new heaven and new earth when we are given resurrection bodies. This is the day that Paul's talking about when he says, I know that my deliverance is coming. One way or another, it is coming. And what a comfort that is. It was said of the 18th century evangelist George Whitfield. It was said, one of his biographers writes, it says, with his eye fixed on his accounting in heaven, he sought no justification of himself on earth. When urged by friends to reply to certain false accusations, lest he be lastingly stigmatized, he replied, I am content to wait till the judgment day for the clearing up of my character. When I am dead, I desire no epitaph but this. Here lies G.W., George Whitfield. What kind of man he was, the great day will discover. We talk about looking forward to that day. I know there's a day coming, and that's what Paul's saying here in verse 20. He says he knows something. I'm sorry, verse 19. He knows that this day is coming, a day of deliverance. He also says in verse 20 that he expects something. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul's hope, Paul's expectation, is that he won't be ashamed, but that Christ will be honored. Now, what what kinds of things often make us feel ashamed? Well, usually it's things that reflect badly on us. One time I was in college and I was a few minutes late for this class and I got to the door and the door was locked. And there was this group of us, there was like five of us outside. We were all just, you know, late by a few minutes 
and the teacher's on the inside, he's ranting and he keeps pointing over at the door and he's lecturing all the students about not coming late. And I just, I remember that. I was like, I hate this feeling. This, this, is, this is shame. I hate this. You know, right now I speak before you as a pastor. When I first started speaking publicly, my uh, words would stutter. My mouth would get really dry. My legs would physically be shaking. And I hated it. I was like, Lord, is this really what you want me to do? Because it was embarrassing. It was, and, and that's what shame does. It's very much tied to ourselves. We're thinking, what do other people think about me? How do I look? But look at what Paul contrasts with his shame. The opposite of Paul's shame is not Paul's honor. What other people think about him. No, the opposite of Paul's shame is Christ's honor what others think about Christ. He says, either I'm going to be ashamed or Christ is going to be honored. That's what I long for. If Christ is not honored, if Christ's reputation is not put to rights, I am going to feel bad. So often we care about our own name, our own reputation, our own promotion, how things reflect on us. That's what makes getting locked out of that classroom difficult for me. I wasn't thinking, oh, how does this reflect on Jesus? I was thinking, I don't like how this reflects on me. And yet here's a man sitting in jail, writing the very words of Scripture, not consumed with his own reputation, but consumed with Christ's. He wants Christ to be honored in his body by life or by death. And he says, I would be ashamed if it was otherwise. And then he does. He adds that qualifier, whether by life or by death. That's the whole span of human existence. How we live, how we die. And Paul says, oh man, I want Jesus to look good in how I live. And I want him to look good both as I approach death and actually die. And he tells us in the next verse how that happens. He says, so how does Jesus look good in our life and in our death? He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How is Christ made to look great in our life? when for us to live is Christ. You know, for some of us, I think we would say, hey, you know, or we might not even say it, but you just kind of look and you'd say, yeah, our life is about fairness. Everything has to be fair. Why is it not fair? That's a a pursuit that's making life all about one thing. No, he says to live is Christ. Christ to be honored in the decisions that we make, the thoughts that we think, the words that we speak, so that Jesus looks absolutely amazing. And then he says, how is Christ to made look great in Paul's death? He says, when death is gain. Now, if you and I were talking to somebody And they said, oh, death is gain. I think we'd be like, "Uh, this person is suicidal. Uh, This person is crazy. 
I mean, how, do you, how many people do you know who approach their death and they're like, yes, it is about time. I'm so glad. And yet that's what Paul is talking about. And, you know, you crazy people like this, you would lock them up. Except Paul's already locked up. He's talking like this. How does death as gain make Christ look great? Well, if someone said, for to me to live is possessions, then to die would not be gain. That's, that's, you lose everything. Death is loss, total loss. If someone said, for to me to live is my family, well, when you die, you leave your family behind. Dying would not be gain. If someone said, for me to live is to be well thought of by others, well, when you die, you can't correct what other people say about you. You can't speak up for yourself. And then you're met face to face with the the opinion of the only one who matters. If you live for your job, if you live for your schooling, then to die is to lose everything that was bound up in that pursuit. Scripture only gives us one thing that we can live for such that dying is gain. If we live for Christ, then after the grave, we will have Christ. It is the only treasure that transfers. It's the only way that sentence can be true. To live is Christ, then to die is gain. And you can think about this in terms of those ancient pharaohs, you know, as they unearth their tombs and those tombs are packed with all of these things they wanted to bring with them into the afterlife. As proof, yeah, none of that transferred. None of that actually went with them. But Paul says, I so care about Christ's honor. He's everything. He says, eventually I'll be free. Either I'm going to be free from prison or I'm going to die and then I'll be free. Prison isn't forever. I want to honor Jesus with my life. I want to honor with him, him in the way I approach death. So to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I shared a a few weeks ago that when I became a Christian at the age of 19, I was in my first semester in college, that God really used the book of Philippians to to help me. And I would write verses out on cards and I'd put them on my wall. And I was telling my family today, I, I came across in one of my books, I was using it as a bookmark. So I was 19 when I wrote this and it sat for years right next to my light switch For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain because it's such a simple and helpful reminder of what basic Christianity is. Living for Christ is not perfection. Living for Christ is not always obeying and never sinning. We live for him as we receive and need and apply his sacrifice to our many sins. We live for Christ when we say, I want to know him better. I don't know him well enough. I'm pressing on to know the Lord. We honor Christ and live for him when we come across beliefs and attitudes that we realize, no, that that has nothing to do with exalting Christ. And we say, I want to reject those. I want to put those away. We, We live for Christ when we realize 
I'm drifting from him onto something else. And by his grace and by his sacrifice, we return to him. This is what Paul commends to us in these verses here. This is what I think he would write as a chapter. If he had a chapter in a book called I Live for This, I think chapter one would be I Live for Christ. If he had a second chapter, I think it would be I Hunger for Christ. I Hunger for Christ. Look at verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, Paul has lived a very fruitful life. We're talking lots of people coming to know Christ through him. We're talking about lots of churches being planted. If success was measured, every metric, he, he would excel. You would say, yes, he lived a fruitful life. And if he kept living, it would continue to be fruitful. But here is a guy in serious limbo. He knows he's going to be fruitful, but he says, my desire... My hunger is to be with Christ because that's far better. I mean, every once in a while, you you just begin to see every every once in a while at our home, we have multiple kinds of ice cream because we like ice cream as a family. So I'll put them out on the counter and I'll say, hey guys, what do you want? Now, when the choices are relatively equal, it goes, it, it becomes this long drawn out of like, hmm, I don't know, this one or that one, oh. But when it's like, you know, one brand that's stinky, which we have a stinky one in the fridge right now, and then another brand that everyone likes, it's like they go so fast. Mudslide, that's what I want. And that's essentially what's happening here with Paul is he shouts it out fast. Living or going to be with Christ Going to be with Christ, far better, far better. The choice, it's a no-brainer. I, now, most people who say, I can't wait to die, are seeking to escape something. But Paul's not saying this because he wants to escape something. He's talking about how desirable Christ really is. When you weigh the two options, Christ is better. He doesn't say this because he wants to get out of prison, a Roman prison. He doesn't say this because he wants to escape execution. He doesn't say this because he just wants to die and escape life in a fallen world. You know, in just a few days, it's going to be June. And our culture has labeled June Gay Pride Month. It's going to be loud and clear in all of these outlets and all of these companies It's a distortion of God's good order where he created man, he created us male and female, he created us. That's God's design and yet it's going to be, this distortion is going to be celebrated. It would be tempting for us to be like, oh Lord, just take me now. If this world is is going down the the hole, down the drain, Lord, just, just take me now. I can't take it anymore. And yet, 
That's not why Paul says it's better by far. He's not trying to escape. He wants Christ. To depart and be with Christ is far better. And then he tempers this desire, though, with duty. Look at verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he says, okay, God's placed me here, and even from prison, I can carry out this charge entrusted to me. He says, I desire to die, I desire to be with Christ, but make no mistake, God's not finished working through me yet, so I'll stay. I mean, if you have ever been depressed, contemplated suicide, or if you've ever had what they call a midlife crisis, these verses right here in Philippians are gold. Just so helpful. Why do you go on living? What is most precious to you? Because most that are contemplating suicide or have a midlife crisis, usually it's a person saying, I didn't think my life was going to turn out like this. I didn't think it was going to be this difficult, this painful. And yet Paul is saying Christ is so precious. You can have Christ in prison. You can have Christ in a crummy career. You can have Christ in a broken down house or a broken down body. You can have Christ in the midst of a difficult marriage or family situation. You can have Christ. I think some of us would say, yeah, I know that. I just, I just don't want to. These crises reveal what we're really hungering for. And basic to Christianity is to bring our hungers our desires, our affections, our goals, and have them wrapped up with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we can't wait to be with him forever. That we're not using heaven as a cop-out when things don't pan out in this life as we hoped. Oh, well, at least we have heaven to look forward to. No, I can't wait to be with him forever that longing that he put in our souls. So Paul says, I live for Christ. I hunger for Christ. To be with him is far better. And then he moves on to what I would say is a third chapter in the book, I Live for This. His first chapter is I live for Christ. Second chapter is I hunger for Christ. The third chapter is I serve for Christ. I serve for Christ. Look at verse 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So this internal wrestling match that we see for Paul leads to this conclusion. He's willing to stay on planet earth and he's willing to serve for the good of others. And you may wonder, I know I certainly wondered, I was like, why Paul are you giving us this long drawn out wrestling match if you're just concluding that you're fine staying alive? 
Like, did we really need all this emotional roller coaster of, you know, oh, I, I don't, I might want to die and be with Christ, but no, I'm going to stay. Did we really need that? And he certainly could have left that internal wrestling out. But here's what it does. It frames for us relationships in the body of Christ. This is a letter of friendship. Paul dearly loves this church. He said in chapter 1, verse 7, he holds this church in his heart. He said in chapter 1, verse 8, he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. He loves this church intensely. And yet they are nowhere near the top of his affections. He loves them, but he would leave them in a moment if it meant he, his time had come to be with Christ. And so Philippians is a letter of friendship that doesn't exalt or idolize friendship. It exalts Christ. It's Christ-centered devotion. All other loves are made to look small in comparison. And so when Paul says, yes, it's necessary that I remain, I'm convinced of this, so I will. And he says, I've got two goals. I'm going to continue with you for your progress in the faith and your joy in the faith. And I love these two goals, progress in the faith. Paul's already talked about the advance or the progress of the gospel. It's the same word in the Greek. The gospel advances through cities, through Roman provinces around the world as individuals Take, the gospel takes root in individual lives. And so Paul says, yeah, I want to work hard to see that in your life, Philippians. And it gives us a model here today. Progress in the faith. Where are you in your relationship with the Lord? Oh, I want to see you furthered. I want to see you growing in your desire for Jesus, in your love for Jesus, in your trust of Jesus, in your obedience to Jesus, in your knowledge of Jesus, growing. And then he adds another goal, joy in the faith. Joy in the faith, because joy, as we'll see in Philippians as a whole, joy is basic to Christianity. You know, often as Christians, when we have an agenda with one another, it's often related to practical things like, hey, let me help you read your Bible more. Hey, let me help you obey in this area. Hey, let me help you get your theology straight. Hey, let me teach you how to pray. And yet it's easy for joy to kind of go under the radar. But this is a great description, very simple description of discipleship, working for other people's joy. Paul is this happy man in jail. There's a lot of rejoicing. He has no idea when he's getting out. And yet he is one happy dude, and it's all because of Jesus Christ. And so, like I said at the beginning, the more we are convinced that Christ is the only one worth living and dying for, the more we will spread this joy to others. Why do you think there are ministries like the one John Piper started, Desiring God? And the ministry Sam Storm started, Enjoying God Ministries. 
These, these are laboring for people to have joy in the Lord. And it's a worthy cause. Don't just teach other people how to read their Bible. Teach other people how to read their Bible and find joy in the Lord. Don't just teach other people how to share the gospel. Teach other people how to share the gospel as an overflow of their joy in the Lord. I once heard a Jacksonville pastor, H.B. Charles, he said, preach like a satisfied customer and not as a paid advertiser. I love that. He was talking to pastors, but it's very applicable to all of us. Preach not, not like a paid advertiser, but like a satisfied customer. You know, one time I was in a, a doctor's office in the waiting area. And this woman came in to the waiting area where there was a number of patients. And she walked in and announced, racetrack has gas at $1.99 a gallon. That was it. That was her announcement. She looked excited, though. Now, racetrack wasn't paying her to do this. This was at the time, I can't remember what year this was, because it was at a time where it had not been under $2 for a while. And so this was exciting news. But Racetrack wasn't paying her to do this. Uh, no one forced her. She, she's not going around to all doctor's offices doing this, I didn't think. Um, but this was good news. And good news is meant to be shared. And so she didn't, like, she didn't look hesitant. She didn't look nervous. I doubt she got all prayed up before she burst into the office of like, oh Lord, help me, help me get this good news out. I mean, she just walked in and announced the good news. And if saving five cents a gallon on gas is good news, oh my church, how much better the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled. We sang it again this morning. It gets me every time. Sinners find eternal joy. I cannot think of better news. Or another song, full atonement can it be. Just line after line of good news. God sent his son, his only son, to take our place as our substitute. All of our sin put on him. All of his righteousness gets put to our account. We're brought into the closest relationship possible. This is good news of great joy for all peoples. It's what the angels announced. It's the happiest news. So Christ is put forward in this passage. He's put forward as the one to live for. He's put forward as the one we should hunger for and desire above everything else. He's put forward as the way we serve others best. We serve them best by laboring for their progress in the faith and their joy in the faith. The more we are convinced that Christ is the only one worth living and dying for, the more we will spread this joy to others. I could invite the worship team to return. Some of you are aware that about a week and a half ago, uh, Pastor Timothy Keller passed away. 
and went to be with the Lord. He was 72 years old. He had a battle with pancreatic cancer that he finally died to. And just before he passed, a video was recorded that they planned to share with his church. And the date they planned to share it with the church ended up being the day he passed away. It was May 19th. And so they showed it again on on Sunday, last Sunday, uh, at Redeemer Presbyterian there. It's located in New York City is where he was. And his, he shared a few thoughts. And his last thought was based on Jeremiah 45.5. Timothy Keller said this. He said, this is what Jeremiah says to his secretary, Baruch. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. He tells his church this. Don't worry about your reputation. Don't worry about your credentials. Ministers, don't make your ministry success your identity. So if things don't go well, you just feel like an utter failure. You just freak out. People, don't make getting a big name in New York City your main thing. Lift up Jesus' name. Hallowed be thy name. Forget yourself. Forget your reputation. Do what you can to lift up God's name. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Even New Yorkers? Of course, all New Yorkers are seeking great things for themselves. No, no. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. And then after Timothy Keller passed away, his son posted his final words on Twitter where he said to his family, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better. So church, may we live for and hunger for and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just think of your kindness of this moment and that we are reminded and refreshed in these truths. Lord, for some of us, we've known these verses for a long time, and yet how good it is that we might evaluate our lives today, 2023, in light of your word. Lord, we do, we want to live for you, and we want to approach death not as the loss of what we're going after, but as the gain because we gain Christ. So Lord, help us. Help us to live for you and all the other things that kind of creep up in our gaze and in our affections, Lord. May these be things that we turn away from. Lord, as I prayed before, just for any who do not yet know Christ, Lord, if they were to die right now, there is no gain for them. Lord, for any who is approaching an uncertain eternity, I pray that today would be the day that for the first time they trust, they rest, they turn from sin and turn to Jesus. And I pray the Holy Spirit's help. Lord, would you do a a miracle? And we thank you for this, Lord. We thank you that the greatest joy is found in you and it is not of this world. And we worship and adore you as our great God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.